Hello and welcome to a special edition of The Bunker, a full roundtable edition in place of your Friday Daily. When we first booked these guests some weeks ago, we thought we'd be reading the last rights for Donald Trump. Then, when we confirmed the guest midweek, it felt like we'd be hosting a wake for Biden and the Democrats instead. Now, who knows? As we record on Thursday, Joe Biden remains on 253 electoral college votes as against Donald Trump's 214. That's according to the failing loser New York Times. Donald Trump is suing anyone and everyone he can, and we may even announce a brand new president during the podcast. So for this special all-star bunker team up treasury edition, we've brought together the unofficial US presidential election panel who've helped us understand it all through this bizarre year. From the very first edition of the bunker back in those innocent times of January 2020, it's Chatham House fellow, former Obama deputy Homeland Security advisor and ex-US Senate counsel, Amy Pope. Hello, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us for the second time this week, although Monday seems like a thousand years ago. It's UCL Associate Professor of Global Politics, host of the Power Corrupts podcast and author of How to Rig an Election, Brian Class. Hello, Brian. Hello. I finally caught up on sleep, so it's good to be here. Well, I'm glad that somebody has. And back after a barnstorming guest appearance on The Bunker in summer when he denounced this season of insanity in America, it's former Republican strategist for George W. Bush and John McCain, now co-founder of the Lincoln Project, the political action committee of Republicans against Trump, Steve Schmidt. Good to have you back, Steve. How are you doing? Doing great. Good to be with you. Thank you. How, how's your nerves? Biden is going to be the 46th president of the United States. It's just a matter of counting, being patient. The math doesn't work for Trump. The statements by his campaign are delusional. Biden's lead in Pennsylvania will be at least as big as it was in Michigan. I think as we look at it right now, Georgia's going to be really close. I, I still think Biden's going to get it. Um, it'll be it'll be extremely close. And then Arizona, even if you were to look at the Trump numbers that came in from the batch last night, that narrowed the race and extrapolated that out all the way to the end. It's not enough. Um, so Joe Biden will win. He will be the president. He will be inaugurated. Trump is lost. It's just a matter of waiting it out and counting the ballots. And all of these legal cases have no merit. And so if you go out and you say, I declare that I'm going to win Pennsylvania, um, it shouldn't be taken any differently than if I say I declare I'm a kangaroo. Or I declare I'm a, you have I'm to say hereby. That's what makes it work. Right. I'm a billionaire. I'm a race car driver. Like none of those things are true. Um, and and so we just have to wait. We have to be patient. But you know, we we know that on January twentieth at noon, the head of state of the government of the United States the Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of the United States, the Head of Government, the President of the United States of America, will be the 46th President, Joseph Robinette Biden of Delaware. And that's the end of the podcast. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. <laughs> Great to have you. Amy, how, what, you know, what, what, how do you think you're going to look back on this particular election in like, like five years' time when, when the dust has settled? Has it been – I mean, it, from inside the whirlwind, it looks – absurd and a total outlier. It is absurd and a total outlier. I mean, I think there are some really terrible precedents that are being set in this election. The fact that the presidential, um, the president himself, the nominee and the, the candidate is not connected to fact or truth or reality. 
and that seems to be okay, that's highly problematic. The fact that um, we have him out there inciting violence, trying to stop the counting of votes, encouraging people um, to in- effectively intimidate voters at the polls, all of this stuff is extremely troubling for what it says about American elections, both in the United States and globally. And that's what worries me. I mean, the, the president is in, an actor, right? I mean, he he loves the theater of this. I don't think he appreciates the real damage that he is causing um, for the American uh, political system and democratic system as a whole. Brian Class, uh, uh, this has been a week of uh, shredded nerves, largely because everybody absolutely immediately forgot the question of the red mirage and the blue shift, which you explained in great detail on the podcast a couple of times, how you know the, the Trump vote would look initially great, uh, but over time, as postal votes came in, which are more heavily Democrat, would see a shift to uh, a stronger position. Yet people still lost their minds when Trump seemed to start ahead with a, a much stronger performance than was expected. Did everything proceed as as you had foreseen, as Emperor Palpatine would say? Well, I mean, you know, there was there were moments of doubt on Tuesday night, that's for sure, because the polls had painted a picture that was slightly different from what actually happened, uh, to put it charitably. And I think, you know, the initial focus on states like Florida, where things just did not go uh, as the polls would have expected, was, you know, worrying to people. I think there's also an issue here, though, with the order of the counting that I did foreshadow talking about that, um, you know, the red mirage and the blue shift, where if you were to say to Democrats on Tuesday night, look, here's what's going to happen now. You're going to win Michigan, Wisconsin, probably Pennsylvania, probably Georgia, Nevada, Arizona. I think every Democrat in the country would say, that sounds amazing. But because of the sort of drawn out process and those moments of doubt, the narrative was set that, that Biden has underperformed. And in fact, I think, you know, these are these are big pickups um, in states that, you know, Democrats are not slated to win. I mean, I, I think it's been 40 years since Democrats have won Georgia and Biden is either going to win it or going to very, very, uh, very, very narrowly lose it. But I think the bigger picture here, and this is the one that I've, I've taken away from this election, was that there are really two elections that were happening. There was the moral election and the political emergency election. The moral election was we wanted a repudiation of Donald Trump that was unequivocal. And I'm afraid that that has not happened the way that I hoped it would, right? Where where after the last four years, you'd hope it would have been an an unbelievable landslide. Yes, Biden got more votes than any candidate in history, but this was not, you know, it was not a 60-40 vote. The emergency Mm -hmm. election that removes Donald Trump from power did happen. And that's much more important in the short term because the most important thing here is this man needs to be divorced from real power. And it does appear that, as Steve said, on January 20th, that's going to happen at noon. Steve, you guys in the Lincoln Project uh, and, and women in the Lincoln Pro- Project work like hell for that repudiation. You are very clear repeatedly on your podcast and all your communications. It's not enough that Trump must be defeated. Trumpism must be defeated. And it looks like the latter hasn't happened. What does that mean? It means we were one for two. Um, <laughs> You know, as, uh, you know, we 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 have said from the beginning that Trumpism is here to stay. Donald Trump isn't going away. And so, what is Trumpism? Trump isn't Berlusconi. He's he's not an inconsequential clown. He's been a very consequential president. In the waning days of World War II, FDR would have his close confidant Mackenzie King to the White House with some frequency during the war and. 
FDR one evening was sketching out this view of the world and what it would look like after the war. And that, that world is the one that we live in. It was architected by FDR and Winston Churchill and the other allied leaders, and it endured from Harry Truman's presidency through Barack Obama, this U.S.-led liberal global order that lifted billions of people out of abject poverty, that spread democracy around the world, that largely kept the peace in the context of the global tragedy of a war in the 1930s and 1940s that killed in excess of 70 million people worldwide. But FDR said to Mackenzie King, he said that he had no ambition that it would last forever, just that it would last for as long as everyone who was alive on the day the war was won was still alive. And if you were born on the day that war was won, the, the, the consequential event of the century that defines our era, those people are 75 years old. We're at the end of the long lifespans of the people who survived the death camps, of the people who stormed the beaches, and here we are. And Trumpism isn't uncouthness. It is an autocratic-ish philosophy with fascistic markers that has rooted itself in the American polity, in the soil of the great republic, like an invasive species, like a noxious weed. And it's going to take a long time to root it out. It is dangerous. It is illiberal. It is part of a global democratic rescission. We see this in Hungary. We see this in Poland. It is not an accident that Nigel Farage is on a stage with Donald Trump in Arizona. Mm is a global movement that is antithetical to the concepts of classical liberalism, of pluralism, of liberty and democracy. And we see this playing out right now, and I hope we get to talk a little bit about it, with Trump's apostasies in unpardonable breaches of his duty with regard to this idea that he's not bound by the continuity of government and the peaceful transition of power that occurs when the American people make a decision about who leads the country. Well, we're going to come on and talk about that, that and the future of the Republican Party a little bit later, but just concentrating once again on the here and now, on this week. I mean, Amy, in, in some respects, this has been the nightmare scenario that we feared, that it would be not a blowout, it would be incredibly tight, it would be incredibly rancorous, and that in so, at some stage either side is going to feel cheated and its faith in the system is going to be damaged. Is there any way of getting past that when one candidate sees only benefit in encouraging that bitterness? Well, we always knew that this was the direction of travel. I mean, the, the really interesting thing about Donald Trump is that he tells you exactly what he's going to do. And people are always surprised then when he does it, which puzzles me because he now has a long track record. I mean, he said he was going to contest the election. He has for months now suggested that mail-in voting would create high levels of fraud and invalidate the vote. He's called into question the 
basically every piece of this and has suggested that uh, fraud would be the only reason why he would not be reelected. So this has been telegraphed forever. He was going to pull it in this direction no matter what. I mean, I think from a strategic point of view, he actually made a mistake in coming out at two o'clock in the morning after election day, suggesting that he was being defrauded of the election. I mean, in fact, at that point, he was doing relatively well and certainly better than the pollsters had predicted. Um, and and it, it just is puzzling to me that he would have taken that moment in time to put all of this stuff into question. But, you know, that that's his style. He, he, he's not shy about it. And um, we shouldn't be surprised. Brian, obviously, he's been seeding the idea that any defeat of any kind is a theft of some sort. And he's finally coming up against state authorities who are pushing back against these these legal attempts to uh, to truncate uh, the counts, to toss out ballots and so forth. Is there an irony that a, a guy who, who maybe never really believed in states' rights, but certainly hitched his, his wagon to it, is now trying to instruct states on how, to, how and when to count? Well, I don't think Donald Trump has any ideological beliefs about states' rights. I don't think he really cares about that stuff very much. I think he has... You know the, the the belief is in himself and his self interest. I I think that this legal challenge, though quixotic as it may be, is is a symbol of some of the sort of problems that have defined the Trump era. So, for example, you know he says that he's that his opponents are trying to steal the election by counting the votes, right? I mean, the the election is counting the votes. That's not something that you can steal by doing it. But he's also just so unbelievably uninformed and unstrategic with some of his uh, goals. And Steve's right. He's been a hugely consequential president. But he has been also a strategic idiot at times. And you saw that on display today where he tweeted in all capital letters, stop the counting at a moment in which he is losing, right? I mean, if, if the counting stopped at the moment that he sent that tweet, he would lose the election because he's trailing in enough states that Biden would win. And yet he's got these mixed messages where, you know, on the one hand, he's saying, do the recounts in the states where I am losing, stop the counting in the states that I am winning. And it doesn't matter to his supporters whether that's obviously glaring hypocrisy. The one angle where he does have some sort of logical consistency is between this and the coronavirus, because he said, you know, if we don't have any tests, we don't have any cases. Well, if you don't count ballots, you can't lose an election. And to be fair, that is actually true. If you never counted the ballots, uh, you wouldn't lose. But I do think that there is a point that's really important here, which is you have to have a legal theory to any challenge. You have to say, here are the specific ballots that we think should not be counted. And here are the reasons for it. You can't go to the Supreme Court and say, our challenge is that we believe there is fraud in general, or our challenge is that we got fewer votes than Joe Biden. Therefore, you know, Amy Coney Barrett, help me out here. You know, that's, that's not going to happen. So I think the real point of this is to sow a politically convenient narrative that will convince supporters of Trump that he lost illegitimately. And that is something that Trump is very invested in for a variety of reasons. But I think that's how we should read the legal challenges, not as something that actually has merit or something that could actually succeed, but rather as something that will undermine legitimacy of Biden's presidency in the Trump camp and also try to help Trump save face. Steve, do you think that's working inside the bubble? Because the message is, is, is his messaging is, is so clear to the base that everything's a con, everything is corrupted, nothing can be trusted. Do you think do you, do you think it's still working within the base and does it have any traction elsewhere? Well, look, I mean, we this is not new. We know that Trump and Trumpism is in essence a cult of personality. 
that's sustained and fueled by a very sophisticated propaganda network. I said last week that in all the long history of the United States, there, there has been no immigrant that has ever come to our shores and done more damage to this country than Rupert Murdoch. Bar fucking none, period, full stop. Hmm. The insanity that has been let loose, captained at the head of the convoy by the Fox News ship, right? The SS Fox News, OAN, the New York Post, the collection of all of these organizations, plus Factbook, excuse me, plus Facebook. Democracy doesn't function in societies where there is no ability to discern the truth from the lie. Can't sustain a democratic government. And so he's done tremendous damage to the fabric of the country with tens and tens and tens of thousands of lies, including the most lethal lie in American history, which is about the lethality of of COVID. And if we had the same mortality rates as did the Germans, there'd be 180,000 more of us alive today. It's no surprise. 30, 35 percent of the country will never accept the legitimacy of the of the election and understand this. It's the losing side who is both a willing to lose, but it's the losing side who gives legitimacy to the winner in a democratic society with the understanding of, hey, we fell short. We'll get you next time. So, yes, all, all of these actions are horribly pernicious. However, they will not succeed in maintaining Donald Trump in political power. And the first step to seeing a receding of this toxic tide is removing this toxic man and his corrupt and disgraceful and disgusting family from all of the levers of power in the American Republic. Two things that stuck out from the actual vote. One is the thing that you might expect, which is that it looks as if, but where Trump has remained strong, it has been in, you know, white, not college educated, rural voters, as you would expect. But one thing that you would not expect is that Trump seems to have got more than a quarter of the non-white vote, a very high share for a Republican candidate. I read somewhere that it's the highest share for a Republican candidate in 62 years. How has that happened after running a, a you know, a, a, barely veiled race baiting law and order campaign. I mean, I I think it's interesting in particular if you look at the Latino vote, right? There's been a lot of questions about how is it that Trump won Miami Dade County um, when that has been traditionally uh, um, a, a Democratic county. But but the issue there is I think the the media and maybe the public at large tends to really lumped together the Latino vote without appreciating that that is actually quite a diverse group of people. And when you look at Florida, for example, you have a lot of Venezuelans, you have a lot of Cubans, all of the rhetoric around Biden is a socialist and he wants to bring a socialist agenda to the United States, that was damaging to Biden and it was difficult to overcome. And that message resonates particularly with the Venezuelan and Cuban American communities. So, I mean, I think people just underappreciate how how these different demographics vote. 
I think that happens with the parties too. That what is a Democrat, what is a Republican, that has really evolved over the last couple of years, really. And we haven't caught up. I mean, the media hasn't hasn't really caught up with it. I don't think the parties themselves have really come to terms with it. Mm-hmm. Amy, we, we look like we're, we are going into months of legal challenges and recounts, merited or not. Should we be concerned that the you know the newly conservative Supreme Court could you know weigh in on Trump's side as it did with Bush versus Gore in two thousand? Or is that am I looking too far ahead there? I think you're looking too far ahead. I mean, the difference with Bush versus Gore was that there were real questions about whether um, votes that had been cast who how to read them, how to understand them. They, the, a lot of the legal challenges you're seeing right now don't really have any basis in law. Uh, and they're really more nuisance lawsuits than anything. I mean, this whole notion that Trump put out that we could go to the Supreme Court to stop the counting of ballots. I mean, that, there's just, there's no basis for that. So, you know, it's not to say there won't be any legitimate challenge going forward. There very well, well may be. But, but most of what we're seeing right now, it's, it's a lot of baseless arguments that are more spin than legal. You, you would certainly expect a real estate developer from Queens, though, to try and tie up any opponent in just in the courts, even in frivolous and pointless uh, legal action. What, you know, when does the Electoral College actually decide? What, what happens if we get to that date and delegates are still not ironed out? Well, the Constitution says that we have to have um, the new president take office on the 20th of January. So um, to the extent that things are not wrapped up by then, they have to be. Um, I would be shocked, though, if we're really looking at litigation that stretches out that far, especially with a lot of these kind of baseless lawsuits. The courts are going through them very, very quickly and just kind of tossing them out um, or reviewing them quickly. And then, you know, that's the end of that. So you know, it, the lawyers are making a lot of money these days on, on both sides, but um, and and certainly the courts will be busy. But but it doesn't appear that there's anything that's going to lead to such a protracted legal challenge that we won't get to January 20th. Steve Schmidt, last time we spoke in the summer, you said that whatever happens, the Republican Party is essentially going to need to go into an analysis to rethink itself. And that looks very unlikely now that the party, well, that Trumpism has not been fully repudiated and that there is a kind of a betrayal myth in the making. You know, in the absence of a of a convincing defeat, is there any road to the Republican Party coming back to sanity? Well, let's let's be clear about something. When when this is all counted, Joe Biden will have gotten more votes than any candidate for president in the history of the United States. He will have flipped multiple states, and the size and dimensions of his victory will be uh, will be very very significant. That said, the House Republicans picked up eight seats. Uh, Mitch McConnell remains the majority leader of the Senate. And the party is going to get crazier. Um, Mm. It is a white, nationalist, blood and soil party increasingly with parts of of its coalition, a mix of militias, white supremacists, all of it. And in the end, when you look at the demographics of the country, it is inexorably a shrinking party, right? Trump got more votes than last time, but the but but, but the party is smaller than it than it has been, 
and you look out across the country, you know, the future of the Republican Party is is dim. But we have an illiberal force in the country that's going to get crazier and not, and not for nothing. You know, there are there are more QAnon candidates in the Republican caucus in the House than there are minorities. And that's mm-hmm. not where the direction of the country is. I mean, we touched again on this last time you were on. I mean, you worked with George W. Bush. You worked with John McCain. The ethos of the Republican Party, as, as long as I've been aware of politics, has been a kind of an all-out, win-at-all-costs approach. It's been, a, it's been a proper street-fighting party. Does the situation that we're in now give you pause for thought? Do you think, you know, somewhere along the line, you know, I, I had a part in creating this, this the, the Republican Party as it is now? Look, I, um, you know, I gave a speech in favor of gay marriage in 2009 or late 2008, years before Barack Obama was for it. I was a Jack Kemp Republican who fought as hard as I could in the party for the idea that the American idea and ideals for everybody. I stood up and I fought against Trump. And you can go look at CNN in 2012 when Wolf Blitzer asked Donald Trump to respond to my saying that he was the head clown in the Republican clown car. I've been at it with him for a very, very long time. Uh, I've spoken out against this as hard as I possibly could have. I have been a practitioner of American campaign politics at the highest levels for a long time. It is not a gentle business. In 2004 and 2008, we had vituperative and hyperbolic arguments about, for example, whether the top marginal tax rates in America should be the Democratic rate of 39.6% or the Republican rate of 35%. Um, This was the delta between a just and an unjust world. Uh, My side lost, right? It lost when Donald Trump seized the party completely and totally, and I left the party. And the Lincoln Project and a bunch of us fought on the side of the one great American political party that remains faithful to America's ideas and ideals. That's the Democratic Party. You know, I I don't look in the mirror and particularly beat myself up, right? You know, I wasn't the news executive at CNN that broke every protocol for interviewing presidential candidates and let Donald Trump call in from his bedroom, right? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't corrupt the country with reality television show bullshit and, and put him on TV as a pretend and fake businessman. And the list goes on and on and on. And I think it's a real mistake for people to look at the Republican Party of the 90s or the 80s, whether you're in strong disagreement with it or not, and not see any difference between that and the Trump era. And if you cannot distinguish between that and the Trump era, it helps explain why the numbers for Trump are so dangerously high because at the end of the day, there's a lot of people who voted for Trump in this election, not because they like Trump, but because they look at the other side and they say, God, Trump is a pig and he's disgusting, but those people over there hate me. And Trump, as bad as he is, is the last line of defense between me and those people. And we need to understand that. We need to we need to lower the temperature on this stuff. But no, um, look, 
When I was John McCain's campaign manager, I was 37 years old. No one, no one asked me about housing policies, right, that would bring about the Great Recession or whether it was a good idea to invade Iraq now, which it wasn't, by the way. So, so what, what I've done and what the group has done, we fought, we fought for American democracy as hard as, we, as hard as we know how. And I think we were amongst the earliest people to speak truthfully and accurately about what the Republican Party was becoming and how dangerous it was. Is the Lincoln Project going to continue now that clearly Trumpism is, as you say, you're one for two? Will you continue into the future, into whatever happens? We'll be up. We'll be up on ads in Georgia tomorrow. We're going to have one, maybe two special elections there. And this is this is a fight that's going to go on for a very, very long time. Brian, something that uh, Steve just touched on there, Fox News. It's been very tasty this week to see outriders of the of, of the of the Trump right, like Michelle Malkin, blaming Fox. Uh, as biased as the New York Times, apparently, uh, after the channel called Arizona for Biden. We've seen Trump voters chanting Fox News sucks. What is this sundering about? Are are Trumpists jettisoning Fox News or vice versa? I mean, is is something breaking apart in that uh, that alliance? Well, I think, you know, Steve Steve referenced this earlier when he was talking about how Trumpism has become a cult of personality around, around a single individual. And so, you know, Fox News, 90 plus percent of the time, you know, conforms to that viewpoint. And especially the primetime opinion programming is like, you know, the the comfort blanket or the safety blanket for for the Trump supporters. And every once in a while, reality collides with that world. And of course, the decision desk at Fox News uh, still adheres to reality. So you have nonpartisan experts who are looking at returns and saying, here's who won and here's who lost. And the second that that reality conflicted with Trumpism, Trump people said, you know, Fox News is terrible and we, we don't trust them anymore. And I think that tells you a lot about what this political movement is, right? It's, you can't even give an inch. If you, if you say that reality is not the way that Trump says reality is, then you are now a traitor. And I think that's where you know the, the the news of Fox News, the sort of journalists who are trying to do the bread and butter of the press, along with the pollsters at Fox News and the decision desk people, they inhabit a parallel reality, which is actually reality, right? And then the the constructed reality that's the world of Hannity and Ingram and all these people, Tucker Carlson, um, that that's the stuff that's supposed to be comfort food to to Trump and to his supporters. So I think the interesting question is what happens in a Biden presidency? You know, how does this work where there is going to be a Republican Party that will exist in very staunch opposition to him, uh, where Mitch McConnell is one of the prominent figures of the Republican Party? And then, you know, what happens with Donald Trump? And we still don't know the answer to that. I mean, what, what does Donald Trump do after leaving the White House? Does he keep tweeting but not really have any ambitions to stay as a relevant figure in the party itself? Um, you know, does he retreat a bit? I, I, I find it impossible to believe that he'll stop tweeting or, um, you know, breaking norms or doing things that ex-presidents definitely shouldn't do. But, you know, the Fox world has now been conditioned to be 24-7 pro-Trump. And so Fox world's going to have to have a new identity with, with, you know, the Obama years, there was the Tea Party stuff. Um, it's, not, it's not clear what the, what the Biden years would be. But I do think that they're going to have to have a serious reckoning um, with reality. And that's that's what's going to happen when, as Steve said, 
what what do you say in in a week or in a couple of days when all these legal challenges fizzle and what Trump has been saying on his Twitter feed and to his supporters and speeches just gets shown to be utterly utterly false. They won't. I don't think his supporters believe that though. I mean, I, that's the interesting thing, right? They they buy into what he's saying. They're never going to admit that that what he's saying is false. I mean, I think Trump. You know, we have the Trump News Network. You know, <laughs> if he's not the president, mm-hmm. he creates his own media platform where he is not. Um, limited in terms of what he says, and certainly not limited in terms of fact. No, but what I what I meant by that is, I mean, you know, when he says the election is, you know, is 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 going to turn out my way, we're going to win Arizona, or you know, we're going to win Pennsylvania, and then he doesn't. You know, I can understand that they'll accept the alternative reality that he's presented that this was rigged against him. But when he says we're going to win the election, and then on January twentieth, Biden's inaugurated. At some point, that reality does conflict. You know, they can believe whatever they want to, but whoever has formal power come inauguration day, that's reality. And I think that's going to be the problem for uh, the supporters: is that they're, they're going to be, you know, there's a cost to lying and being wrong in democratic circles, right? So if if you come out as somebody who's a Biden surrogate and you say we're going to win Florida. And that turns out to be false. There is a cost professionally to doing that. There is not the same cost to people like Rudy Giuliani, who just makes stuff up constantly. And the question is, what happens once that reality gets away from actual power? And that's about to happen, I think, in the United States. Amy, before we before we wrap up, I can't believe we've gone through so long into this podcast with barely mentioning Joe Biden and the Democrats that much. And the left in the UK is insisting that this that Biden is a failed centrist and the fact that, you know, he didn't completely wipe out Trump and, and uh, render Trumpism uh, part of the past uh, shows that they should have they really should have gone with Bernie or AOC or somebody. How, how do you think the Democratic Party is going to react to the experience of this election, even if they win? So I think that the Democrats have an issue that they need to be mindful of the way the Republicans do, which is that there are a lot of voices that are um, pretty much on the edge and they are, um, I don't think, representative of much of the country. And they risk a situation where they're alienating lots of folks. I mean, I, I do believe that some of Trump's appeal is is what Steve captured, which is that they know that he is, you know, disgusting or undignified or uncouth and is a liar, but they don't like the way that they are being portrayed in the Democratic Party and they don't identify with it. And and I think that's going to be Biden's challenge. How does he deal with the different pieces of the Democratic Party? How does he keep it um, a party of more Americans and not just pander to the very extreme left, but how does he also bring in some of the new ideas that are coming in on the left? You know, where there is room for change, there is room for progress. It's, it's a tough act. Um, you know, I don't think there's an easy way forward. And in the same, along the same lines, it's going to be tough to bring along sort of the more moderate Republicans. I mean, I do believe that most Americans want some just sensible governing, but at this point, it's become quite tribal. It's 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 really hard to chart the way forward. Just to wrap up, then, if Joe Biden wins, as Steve so forcefully asserts, and we hope he's right, what does year one of a of a Biden presidency look like, Steve? What do you th- what what do you think the first year of President Biden is going to look like? Is it going to be a year of repairs, or will he be able to make positive 
positive, positive policy movements? Well, I, look, I think that, um, you know, the, the first year of the Biden presidency has to be to get COVID under control. You know, nothing, nothing can happen in America, right, from economic recovery across the board unless and until that happens. And then I think we look at a lot of the structures of our democracy, voting rights, Civil Rights Act. We have a lot of work to do. And there's a lot of issues in the country that 80% of the country agrees on. And we'll see what happens, right? Um, immigration, for example, we'll, we'll see, you know, if, if Vice President Biden is, if the president-elect can get it done on that stuff. Um, but, you know, I'm optimistic. I think that we got to come out of this period. And I, I think Joe Biden is the right man in the right moment. Amy, Joe Biden, year one, what do you think? What's going to happen? So I think a lot of it is going to be reestablishing um, sort of what we think of as American governance, um, reestablishing American leadership globally, reestablishing our relationships with our allies, recommitting to multinational organizations, multilateral organizations like NATO. Um, I think, frankly, in the foreign policy area, he has a lot more latitude than he will domestically. Domestically, legislation is going to be a real nightmare with the Republican-controlled Senate. Um, I anticipate that Mitch McConnell is going to try to block a lot of what um, a Biden president will do. Um, and I think, you know, the president is going to then be pushed into a place where he's using a lot of executive authority to undo um, what Trump has done, especially on issues like immigration. Brian, what are you expecting? Well, I think the question comes down to what happens in the Senate and how the margin shakes out, because we still have unresolved races in Georgia, potentially two of them with a runoff in January. And, you know, not only could that be decisive in who controls the Senate, although it's probably unlikely that the Democrats will at this stage, but if there's a narrow margin, you know, that really does change things. Because I think a lot of Democrats assume that there's absolutely no room for bipartisanship with today's modern Republican Party. And there's, there's good reason to believe that. But on the other hand, there are people in the Senate like Mitt Romney who will vote for common ground. And, and I think that if it's a one vote or a two vote uh, you know, minority for the Democrats with a tiebreaker for Kamala Harris, the vice president, you, know, you, you can actually get stuff done. You, you can't get everything done. You're not going to pass a $2 trillion climate change bill, but you can get significant progress on some issues like COVID, like economic relief, like trying to potentially pass an infrastructure bill. And of course, I echo the, the, the comments that Amy made that I think a big part of this will be foreign policy and making clear that America is back and ready to lead again, which is, an, a, I mean, I don't think we can underestimate that on not just things like NATO and security policy and standing up to China with allies instead of just, you know, launching counterproductive trade wars alone, but also on things like climate change, where the U.S. will now probably return to the Paris Climate Accords and start to lead on issues that you know our allies actually genuinely care about. So on the domestic front, there will be modest improvements, I think, and I think it will be a major improvement in tone, rhetoric, and action on foreign policy. Fingers crossed. Amy Pope, Brian Klass, and Steve Schmidt, thank you so much for joining us. I know you're wildly busy, so thanks for uh, thanks for coming on a podcast where there's no votes in America to be won. We're just, you know, powerless Brits over here. Whatever happens, don't be a stranger. We'd love to have you back on the bunker. Listeners, thanks for listening to this presidential election edition. If you want to support the podcast and to help us carry on and expand, you can. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find our Patreon page, where your backing will earn you stylish merchandise, as well as a warm sense of righteousness. 
Amy, Steve, Brian, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Pleasure. you. Thank you very much. We'll be back next week with more dailies, the weekly roundtable, and maybe a brand new president. Who even knows? We'll see you then. Thank you. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harris. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.